Would you just take these words and turn them into something uh, that changes us uh, so that we can be part of how you are changing the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go Hawks. Um, we just need to tag that right on to there just to... Just, it works. It's superstition, but it works. Um, we're in the middle of a series called, uh, I'm just kidding, I don't even watch football, baseball, soccer, what is it? And um, in a series called Thriving in Exile. And as we've learned over the last few weeks, there's actually great hope in exile. So if this is like your first Sunday and you're like, oh, we're talking about exile. Well, that's good because I'm sick of like hearing about God's love and and hope, and, and things like that. I just, let's talk about exile. If this is your first Sunday, there is great joy, I want you to know, in exile. Great healing, new life, waiting for us in exile. In fact, for the follower of Jesus who wants the fullest, biggest, most meaningful life possible, it can only be found in exile. In exile. But what exactly are we talking about when we use that word? Well, according to the dictionary, to live in exile means to live outside one's own country, to be banished from one's home, to wander without a place of permanence. That's how the dictionary defines it. But the Bible defines it differently. It says that living in exile means living at the center of the heart of God. It means finding provision where provision seemed impossible. Does anybody need some of that today? Some provision where you're like, it's not going to work out. I don't know how this is going to happen. It means finding purpose in the midst of life's most difficult circumstances, in the middle of that deepest pain, the stuff that doesn't make sense, finding purpose there. How many of us could use some of that today? Most of all, exile means the end of slavery. The end of slavery to a world that has its idea of what the good life is upside down. Totally upside down. So in other words, exile is good news, even when it doesn't feel like good news. And my wife Katie and I can attest to that. This last summer, we had a new baby. Uh, His name is Tucker Bowen Rice. He was born on July 12th. You can say, aww. Bunch of heartless... Even though he's now three months old, he's our second born, which means this is the only picture that we have of him. So, it's just reality, second born, sorry. Well, a couple weeks before Tucker was born, we discovered a bunch of black mold in our, in our rental in Kirkland. And we, have a, we had a great relationship with our landlord, and, and all that was going well, but we just realized there was no time to get this fixed uh, before Tucker came, and you just can't bring an infant into a house like that. So, uh, we had to go. Uh, but there, wasn't all, there also wasn't much time to, um, to uh, find a new place, as you can imagine. And we were looking, and, and so when a wonderful couple in our church here found out we were about to have a baby and be homeless, uh, they offered to let us stay with them until we found a place, and we were so grateful for that. We were also sad. We had lived in this little rental in Kirkland since we moved up here to this area four years ago. We had great neighbors. We loved all of Kirkland's activities and the waterfront where we'd get to walk most days, but we had to go. We had to go. So the week before Tucker was born, our, our wonderful Kirkland neighbors, uh, they helped us move all of our stuff into storage. And the day before Tucker was born, we moved some of the rest of our stuff into this temporary place, and we scrambled to get it as organized as we could, and at 5 a.m. the next day... We went to the hospital to have a baby. And Tucker was born later that day, and we were thrilled 
and we were so grateful. And the next day, we were looking at rentals on the way home from the hospital. <laughs> and we were not so thrilled, nor were we so grateful about that whole situation. But by the grace of God and some of our friends here in this church and Facebook, to be honest, um, we found a place here in Bellevue. We found a place here in Bellevue, and, and with the help once more of our Kirkland neighbors, we moved everything out of storage, out of the temporary place, and into our new rental in Bellevue. And so with a toddler and a newborn and a very confused yellow lab, <laughs> we slowly began to unpack. It was a weird summer. Lots of mixed emotion in there. On the one hand, we were grateful for the way that God provided for us. On the other, we were really sad to leave Kirkland and, and, and just the memories that went all with that and the life we had made there. And, and as anybody, uh, well, you kind of know that uh, what makes this even more painful is kind of like as any Kirklander knows, to, to move from Kirkland to Bellevue is to live in exile. <laughs> it was, come on, Curry Lane, you know. I know, I know, people move here from all over the world, but you don't have Kid Valley. You don't have Kirkland Uncorked. You don't even have Costco. Like, how do you people live that way? Obviously, I'm, I'm mostly kidding. And uh, it's ridiculous to consider living in Bellevue as, you know, living in exile. But if you think about it, don't we all have those places in our lives that, that feel like exile? Even if it doesn't look like it on the outside. Maybe sometimes especially when it doesn't look like it on the outside, but we feel it on the inside. We have those experiences. And many of us right now in this space, those who are watching on the podcast, are experiencing feelings of exile right now. In marriages that have turned cold, like you can't even remember your wedding day. And the joy and the hope that you felt at that time. In jobs that are unsatisfying, you're wondering, how did I get here? It's not what I wanted to be when I grew up. In friendships that seem few and far between or just non-existent. In bodies that can be so frail and so broken and won't get well. In futures that can feel uncertain and even hopeless. Many of us even feel exiled from ourselves. Like if we could just get some clarity around who we were made to be, what we were made to do, we would just, that would be amazing. We all experience exile in some form, whether or not it looks like it on the outside. So then, how do we make the most, how do we make the best of living in exile, like we've been talking about? In fact, how do we not just make the best of it, but how do we thrive there as we were intended to? Well, one of the ways, and it's the way we're talking about today, one of the ways we learn to thrive in exile is by traveling light. By traveling light. If you want to go on an adventure... If you want to get close to the action, if you want to see and experience things that only a few people get to see and experience, then you have to travel light. You can't bring your house and everything you own with you into the wilderness, into the mountains, into the jungle. You can't bring that stuff. You have to keep it simple. You have to bring a tent, right? You have to travel light. And a tent is kind of this wonderful symbol of what it means to be easy to set up and tear down and move whenever God says to move. It's the, it's the sort of the home of choice that God gave his people when he freed them from slavery, from the Egyptians. You're going to be in tents. So you can be real portable. You can move. Now, tents are risky, right? They're vulnerable. They leak a little bit more than some of our homes, don't they? And in addition, if you're a bear, like a tent is really just like a lettuce wrap for the good stuff inside. There's a vulnerability there. There's danger there. But, but the excitement, to get close to the action, you've got to take a tent, not the house. But how exactly does this traveling light and this, this thriving in exile go together? 
Well, there's a great scene from the Gospel of Matthew that, that Annie just read, and it's from chapter 10, and it's the scene where Jesus is sending out his 12 disciples kind of for the first time to, to go and do some of what he's been doing. And he's spent, Jesus has spent months and even years preparing this little group of 12 to send them out and to go do what he does, modeling for them how to do it, coaching them, training them, and now it's their turn. It's their turn. So as they're getting ready for their first mission, you can kind of imagine their excitement and even some of those nerves. And you can imagine them kind of gathered around Jesus, and Jesus is calling them in a little bit closer, giving them these final instructions. And I, and I kind of picture it like one of those locker room scenes in a movie where the coach is just pumping up his players to go and just leave it out on the field, and they're just, the adrenaline is pumping. The nerves are pulsing. This is going to be awesome, the disciples are thinking. So Jesus starts in with what he's sending them out to do, with what He's sending them out to do. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. Tell them the kingdom of God is near. Then go raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons. And the disciples, they look around at each other like, this is awesome. We're going to like do miracles and we're going to do like culture changing stuff. This is going to be amazing. So Jesus lays it out clearly what they're going to be doing, what they're going to be doing. But I think the mood inside the room started to change when Jesus told them how they were going to be doing it. And he starts in with this. Don't take any money. What did he say? Did you hear what he, there's something about honey? I didn't catch that. And, and don't take a bag to carry anything in. Why would we not take a bag? How will we carry our change of clothes and our extra sandals and stuff? And don't take a change of clothes or extra sandals or stuff. So you just want us to convince others of God's kingdom by smelling terrible and like having ripped up shoes. That's a great plan, Jesus. Next, you're going to tell us we can't even take a staff to protect ourselves. And don't take your staff. Great. Thanks, Jesus. Now, if I were one of the 12 disciples hearing Jesus' game plan here, uh, he would have lost me right about the part where he said, uh, don't take your money. Don't take any money. Right? Can you imagine that? This is, let's drive it home a little bit more. Don't take your cell phone. <laughs> right? No chance. We don't go any, I don't leave a room without my cell phone, <laughs> let alone like travel somewhere and, and got to find, but it just seems to keep getting worse. He says, stay with strangers that you will meet in the towns you'll go to. And while you're out on your mission, uh, keep in mind, you're going to be like a bunch of sheep who kind of wander into a hungry pack of wolves. And we know how that turns out. And um, uh, uh, you'll be beaten in public places. Oh, and then you'll be cross-examined by the sharpest minds in the land. But don't worry. When you get in front of them, the Holy Spirit, which you can't hear, will tell you what to say. Okay, now get out there and spread that good news. Let's go. Well, Jesus' not-so-motivational speech reminds me that the what of following Jesus is actually, it's, it's the good stuff. It's the stuff we're after. I want to change the world. I want to bring justice. I want to experience this deepest life possible. I want to be part of revival like we keep talking about here. That all sounds great. The what sounds great, but it's the how of Jesus. It's harder to swallow. But it's the how of Jesus that actually has the power to accomplish those things, to bring justice, to change the world, to bring revival. How Jesus sends out the 12 is what makes this all so interesting and for three reasons. First of all, he tells them to travel light, to leave all his stuff there because he, he wanted them to be distinct from other disciples of other teachers at that time. All kinds of teachers going around spreading different philosophies, different ideas. Their disciples kind of, uh, you could identify them by what they're carrying, what they're wearing, that kind of stuff. And so this is setting them apart. And this is what God has always done with his people, calling them to live differently. 
different rhythms of life, different values, different customs. It's hard to imagine because so many of us are morphed into just general culture. You can call them the Christian bumper stickers and Christian music and Christian cable networks, different lifestyles, different living. Second reason Jesus tells them to travel light is to remind them that the mission is about God's ability and not about theirs. It's about God's ability and not about theirs. And this is so easy for us to forget, especially in this part of the world where there's so much power, there's so much wealth, there's so much opportunity. Even if you feel totally constrained by your lack of those things right now, we still have so much more, so much more than most of the world. It's easy to forget with all that stuff accessible to us that it's not us who's running the show. And Jesus wants to make it clear to them that that life simply works better in dependence on him. It just works better. If you want life, it works better in dependence on him. So travel light, he says. But there's a third reason that I think Jesus tells them to travel light, and it's this. Jesus wants his disciples to know by experience That power doesn't save the world. Vulnerability does. Power doesn't save the world. Vulnerability does. So counterintuitive. And Jesus models this throughout his entire life and ministry. He comes as a baby, born in a barn. Bad idea, God. It's not going to get anybody's attention. He grows up in a backwater town as an average, no-name carpenter. Really? Carpenter? Boring. In his three years of public ministry, he does start to gain some momentum, gain some followers. But when he gets to the cross, all of those, all of those followers leave him. And what the disciples don't yet know as they're listening to Jesus' speech is that soon he will go to that cross. And on that cross, the God who created everything, the God who has all the power, will give up all of his power, all of his power, and allow his creation to crucify him. The event that changes everything about everything forever. It doesn't look like some triumphant victory. It looks like a ragged body hanging on a cross. That's victory. Why? Because power doesn't save the world. Vulnerability does. So when Jesus sends his disciples, that's, that's what he's telling them to do. Lay it on the line. Let it go. Make your, I started singing Disney stuff. Uh, make yourself entirely vulnerable. And you'll experience the adventure of a lifetime. The adventure is to be found in the vulnerability. Make yourself vulnerable, you'll finally get the life you've been looking for. Lose your life for my sake, and you will find it. One of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, in her book, Daring Greatly, captures this idea well. She says, you can have comfort, or you can have adventure, but you can't have both. You can have comfort, or you can have adventure, but you can't have both. Now, you were made to live an adventurous life, and you know it. You were made for this. But you can't have comfort and adventure. And where do we spend most of our time and energy? I know where I spend it. I'm a huge fan of comfort. Like if it says comfort and easy, like on a box of cereal, I will buy that box of cereal. Any product, you put comfort and ease on there, I'm taking it home. Right? But we can't have those two things. And for those of us who want to have a life that's all about this adventure, well, The good news is Jesus extends that same invitation that he gave to those 12 disciples all those years ago. He says, lay it all down and trust me. Stop seeking after the money and the fame and the stuff and whatever your form of safety and comfort might look like. And we are very creative and can come up with all kinds of forms of that stuff. And just follow me. Change the world with me by making yourself 
vulnerable, by allowing me to bring the healing that only I can bring, to make things right the, only, the way that only I can make things right. So I want adventure, you want adventure. But I know that left to my own devices, I will choose comfort and ease every time. And I'll miss the adventure so often. So how do we step into the kind of vulnerability that we're talking about? The kind that, that changes lives. The kind of stuff that changes our lives. Are there, are there parts of your life this morning that are like, I would love for this to be different about me. Gosh, I wish I didn't have to struggle with this. I wish I could do that. Do you have that kind of feeling? And what about those in your life, in your, in your family? Man, I wish that they had this. I wish they could do that. In your neighborhood, your communities. We've all got those places. How do we change those things? Jesus comes and he demonstrates it. There's all kinds of ways, of course, that we can be vulnerable here, right? We can have that honest conversation with a friend. Some of us need to have that. Some of us might be thinking of somebody in particular. You might be the person who somebody's thinking of, so just be careful. <laughs> through sharing our ideas more openly with each other, through sharing our homes without, like, cleaning, cleaning so much, you know, and make sure everything's dust-free. It's just let people in. Through downsizing our stuff and our creating room in our closets and our bank accounts. But all of our practices of vulnerability really come down to just one thing. Just one thing, and it's honesty. And so today I want to give you a question that you can use to practice the kind of vulnerability that changes not only our own lives, that are those areas where we want change, this is, this is going to be how it happens, but also in the lives of those around us, in our community. It's so much part of what brings revival. So let me give you the question, and then I'm going to tease out what it means. The question is this. Am I being honest with myself? Really? It's terrible grammar. I know. Whatever. Uh, the point is you've got to put the really on the end to kind of get to the point. Right? You gotta, am I being honest with myself? Really? And I stole this completely from a preacher named Andy Stanley, but I gave him full credit, so that's fine. Probably not the first guy to steal from him. Am I being honest with myself? Really? In other words, um, am I not pretending here? Am I not trying to pose and, and, and create some space between me and this other person? Am I, just, am I just being honest? You see, vulnerability is just honesty with flesh on. It's just honesty with flesh on. So to, to get it honest, we constantly have to ask ourselves this question because our hearts are just so clever, so deceitful at times. So deceitful. We can talk ourselves into anything. Into anything. No matter how much it doesn't make sense. We can talk ourselves into a bad relationship, a bad life direction, a bad decision, a bad haircut. <laughs> We're so good at self-deception, we hardly notice it anymore, right? We learn to put on those masks, we learn to pretend to be something that we're not, and that keeps the space between us, it keeps the tension going, it keeps that cycle of violence going, going, going. All that posing and posturing prevents us from being conduits of God's love and justice in the world. So asking ourselves, am I being honest with myself? Really? Helps us to start to get at some of those hidden motivations, those desires to hide or to pose a certain way. Letting those things go, letting those things down is the way forward. We can turn and face our deceitful hearts and say, you know, thanks for the suggestion, but I'm, I'm going to travel light from here on out. I don't want to spend any more time pre pretending to be something I'm not. Like, I don't know if you can relate, but I spend a lot of time pretending to be something I'm not, to pretending to be stronger, pretending to be better at something, pretending I know something about football. Like, you name it. 
spend a lot of time pretending. I don't want to spend any more time on that. And I don't want to spend any more energy on just making myself comfortable. I could drive to Ikea without opening my eyes. Like, I know Ikea, like the back of my hand. Like, it's just, I go there, and I find comfort, and I just look at all these incredible scenes that are laid out for you. Of course, they all come in a box this size, and you have to assemble it. But nevertheless, it's like that symbol of comfort, that symbol of, like, if you just had this, oh, life would work. If you just had this, life would work. Thing, a relationship. But I don't want to spend my energy that way anymore. I want to stop playing games to keep people from finding out the truth about me just keeps us broken and bleeding. It keeps our world broken and bleeding. But vulnerability, the kind that Jesus demonstrates in his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that's the stuff that saves the world. That's how Jesus wants to save the world through us. And so I wonder, what are those honest conversations you need to have with somebody? Maybe a spouse or a friend or a coworker? What's that stuff that you know you're just holding on to? Way too tight. It's not that it's a bad thing, and that's what's so confusing. It's not a bad thing you're holding on to. It's just the way that you're holding on to it. Like, God, don't take this away. I need this. I'll be honest and say, we joked about cell phones, but often that is my comfort zone, right? You walk into a public space where you don't know anybody, that's fine. I got friends here. They're all here. I don't need you. We got all kinds of goofy stuff for comfort. But there's so much freedom, there's so much joy, and there's so much healing. And leaving those things and just going with him wherever he wants us to go. You were made for adventure, you know it. I was made for adventure. We want that adventure, and the only way to it, the only way to thrive in the exile that we experience is to make ourselves vulnerable, open ourselves up, and let God do whatever God wants to do. So Jesus, we come... With that as our context, and we, we ask for courage, where we need to have those conversations, where we need to let go of those things or take hold of some other things, give us courage. Give us companionship in that, that we would not have to be alone in those choices, alone in those um, decisions. God, we, we want the adventure. It's hardwired into us, and, and we go looking for it everywhere, and when we can't find it, we just want to numb out that feeling. God, I want the adventure, and it's a scary prayer to pray. So Jesus, give us the courage to to be vulnerable with each other. In our context at work, in our context at home, maybe with that person who we find very intimidating, that person we really don't like. God, would you just open the floodgates so that your love would pour through, your justice and healing would come. In the power of Jesus' name, amen.